0: Hear the word of God from Romans 14. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? None of us lives our lives alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that He might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You, then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself but if anyone regards something as unclean then for that person it is unclean if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat you are no longer acting in love do not by your eating destroy someone for whom christ died therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of god is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness peace and joy in the holy spirit because anyone who serves christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, church family. I hope you're doing well on this cold, cold morning. Today is our last sermon in our series in the Book of Romans, and I hope you enjoyed going through this book together as a church. I've loved going through it with you, I know the pastors have loved being in this book together with you. Our next week we'll start our series in, the, in our Advent series, which is going to be also kick offing, uh, kicking off our next sermon series in the books of Isaiah and Matthew together, which is so very waypointy of us to do both those books, Old Testament and New Testament book, at the same time together. Um, we love doing that, and we love this idea of diving into the the themes of Isaiah as it's fleshed out in Matthew, and we we'll love seeing why some call Isaiah the fifth gospel. So we're going to see, as we dive into this next series together, going all the way through Advent, and from January all the way into the spring season, we're going to be diving into the books of Isaiah and Matthew together. Pastors and elders are so excited about this next sermon series, I hope you are too, uh, but next week we'll start our Advent series. I know typically this is the first Sunday, so the first Advent in a calendar season, but we're going to be celebrating our first. Advent Sunday next Sunday. So be ready for that as we equally or all of us are coming together to be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. So today we're finishing the book of Romans. Now remember that the first 11 chapters of Romans well, really laid out the gospel, God's plan of salvation for all of his people. And then Paul transitioned in Romans chapter 12 into how do Christians live in light of the gospel? We saw that they put to death their earthly natures, became transformed by the renewing of their minds, they submit to government officials in freedom, and so much more. Here in chapter 14 and into chapter 15, we see a more detailed information on how Christians are to live with each other. I believe the key point to this passage is that Christian freedom allows us to value unity over uniformity. I'll say that again, Christian freedom allows us to value unity over uniformity. Sadly, from what I've seen and what I've heard, I feel that one of the most common pastimes of the church is judging one another. Wouldn't you say so? I mean, how many times have you heard, can you believe what she's wearing? Or, I can't believe he bought that. Or, where is blank family? I haven't seen them in forever. Do they they even go to church anymore? Then my mind starts thinking, when we hear all these judgment styles, so I start thinking about the people from the movie Footloose, and I start feeling judged for wanting to dance. And so I just, this idea of judging and church kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? I mean, it's sad but true. The church has been known in this society, in this culture, to be judgmental, especially to each other. And it's one thing to critique society instead of what is right and wrong, and a completely different thing to judge each other on matters of Christian maturity. And it saddens my heart, and this is what I feel. I feel that's the image. If you want to do a caricature of the church, is a caricature of the church seems to be this image of people standing in judgment over another, being like, hmm, look at that person. And what a sad caricature. What a a sad attribute to to make extreme. And that's the attribute so often people think of in the church. Today, what I want us to see is that we have Christ-bought freedom and grace-shaped holiness, And this should lead us to greater desire for unity over uniformity. Our text in Romans 14 speaks right away about issues that were likely causing disputes and arguments among the believers. The issues that were divine to Christians in ancient Rome were probably related to certain ritual requirements of the Old Testament law. Some of the Roman Christians probably felt bound to adhere to what they saw as ongoing dietary and ceremonial requirements of the law. While others felt no obligation at all to like, oh, I don't need to follow that. Those are obsolete laws, no longer done because they're fulfilled by Christ. Both sides held what they saw as biblical arguments supporting their view. There are other arguments, arguments of whether or not eating meat sacrificed to idols could be done, or eating meat deemed unclean, or celebrating days seen as holy to Jewish calendars, or celebrating days seen as holy to Roman calendar. Whatever there is, there were issues facing these early Christians. And for modern Christians, we also have our Romans 14 type issues, don't we? Those issues that might take any number of forms, in addition to the ones mentioned, well, Christians might have different, sincere, but different um, convictions regarding what kind of clothing to wear or how much clothing to wear or how little clothing to wear or what to wear on a Sunday morning. Do you wear your Sunday best or come as you are? Do you put on fancy hats and wear a suit every Sunday or should you come like, hey, man, this is how I'm comfortable coming to meet Jesus? Do you celebrate secular holidays? Is that permissible? Do you watch certain TV shows or not watch certain TV shows? Do you drink alcohol or not drink alcohol? Do you use birth control or trust God to control your family size? Believers take strong stands on both sides of these issues on biblical grounds. But the Bible doesn't give a definitive answer one way or the other to some of these issues. So what does Romans 14 say for us? For us, for, for the Romans as well as for us, specific issues may be different. But Paul's point is this the same. In matters of conscience. This is words there in Romans 14. In matters of conscience. In other words, matters of personal convictions regarding practices that are neither explicitly commanded nor prohibited in the Bibles. Matters of conscience. Christians must must adhere to two standards. Here are two things. Number one, refrain from judging or condemning believers whose opinions differ from your own. Two, Refrain from exercising your freedom in ways that would pressure, embolden, or encourage another believer to sin by going against his own conscience. I'll say that again. Number one, refrain from judging or condemning believers whose opinions differ from your own. That's big. That's huge. In matters of conscience, in matters of things that are personal conviction, regarding practices that neither explicitly commanded or prohibited the Bible, we must do these two things. One, refrain from judging or condemning believers whose opinions differ from your own. And then two, refrain from exercising your freedom in ways that would pressure, embolden, or encourage another believer to sin by going against his own conscience. This idea is, number one, make sure that you're not judging, you're not critiquing, you're not condemning people for having different convictions, different, different matters of conscience than you. And to make sure that your exercise of your freedom does not pressure, does not embolden, or encourage another believer to go against their own conscience. Does that make sense? Those are two things that Romans fourteen is saying. It's saying, guys, listen, you're free. You're free. These matters of conscience, things that are disputable. These things that we can talk about. These things are. These things are. They're disp- arguable. And you have biblical grounds to stand on. Well, let me tell you what. Make sure. I don't care about anything else. These two things I want to make sure you do. That you do not judge or condemn another person for thinking differently, if you, on their biblical basis. And then two, make sure that your belief, your conviction, does not lead them to sin and stumble. Just because you think that reading Harry Potter is the best thing in the world, I don't want you to go somebody who honestly has an honest conviction that they should not read Harry Potter and be like, what's wrong with you? You should be reading Harry Potter. Right? The gospel of Harry Potter is not more important than the gospel of having them not sin. You guys with me? The bottom line for Paul was love and unity. As he already said in Romans thirteen eight. let no debt remain outstanding except a continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That's what he says in Romans thirteen eight. And Romans 14 then follows as an illustration of how Christians can fulfill the law of love even when they disagree about specific requirements in their daily conduct. Even when they disagree. Here's how to fulfill Romans thirteen eight about fulfilling the debt of love. A couple of things I do, though, want to run over really quickly is how Romans 14 has commonly been misunderstood and misapplied. This beautiful chapter about how to love one another has been used to restrict freedom, has been used to condemn people, has been used to not judge or whatever it may be. I want to, say, I want to give you four really quick things on what it does not say. Okay, Number one, Romans 14 does not say that all opinions regarding matters of conscience are equally valid. It does not say all matters. Questions of va- matters of are equally valid. Paul makes it clear that there are strong Christians in Rome who are rightly understood their freedom, and that there are weaker Christians who are still learning the process and learning what it means to be free. Right? Paul himself didn't remain neutral. He actually said he aligned himself with the stronger position. He says all things are clean, but his, his approach clearly demonstrates that one position was more accurate to him biblically than another. But his approach tells us that discussing differences of opinion and even pointing out a brother's doctrinal misunderstanding or error needs to be done in a gentle, patient manner. It needs to be loving instruction and correction in order to preserve harmony in the local church. But some people believe that this is a gag order, that, you shouldn't, was, that, that um, all opinions are the same. No, there are some that are more correct than others. But he should be spoken in love. Number two, Romans 14 does not say that Christians should refrain from judging a believer who is engaging in obvious sin. At one point, Romans 14 says, You then, verse 10, why do you judge your brother and sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will stand before God's judgment. And then later he says in verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And people in our morally tolerant age, they love this passage of scripture. Like, don't judge, don't judge me, you shouldn't judge. Paul is saying not to judge, don't judge anybody, right? People of different lifestyles should be judged. Matthew 7.1 says, do not judge or you too will be judged, right? So people love this idea, this mindset, but people misunderstand what this actually is saying. See, this context here literally is context towards other professing believers. The context of both Romans and 14 is overlooked completely, Paul is clearly prohibiting judging on matters of conscience in Romans 14. He says nothing about that would restrict Christians from judging ungodly or immoral behavior to another Christian. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebuked the Corinthian Christians for not judging a so-called brother who is practicing sexual immorality. And in Matthew 7, where he says, don't judge lest you be judged, Jesus clearly prohibits hypocritical judging arrogantly condemning someone else for the same behavior you are practicing. But he says nothing that would restrict those who are practicing righteousness from judging those who are practicing evil. As a matter of fact, later on in Romans uh, Matthew 18, he says that when a, bro- when a brother is sinning, that you should actually get other bro- brothers to help you rebuke that brother who's sinning. If that doesn't work, get to elders. If that doesn't work, get the whole church. So there is a judging that is called to happen. This is not a call to stay silent and not speak out in loving judgment. See, that word judge is so difficult for us, right? For most of us, when we think of judge, we think of this, this massive person in front of a big bench wearing these black flowing roads with a massive gavel. And we think condemnation. We think conviction. We think jail time. We think death sentence. And that's not what the word is saying. That we are actually called to judge our brothers. If they're walking in sin, we're called to lovingly call them out to rebuke. That's what the point of Matthew 18 is. The point of Matthew 18 is that you rebuke in love so they be brought back into the fold. That's the purpose of this whole process. It's not to kick somebody out of church. It's to bring them back in with love. And so, what we call this is not a, Romans 14 is not saying don't judge anything, everything is permissible, everything is free to go, don't call anybody out. No, that's not what this is saying. Three, Romans 14 does not say that the convictions of the weakest brother or sister should determine what the local church practices. That's not saying, like, yes, we should care for the weakest, we should care for those who are not spiritually mature, but it doesn't determine the overall practices of the church. Paul rebuked the Colossians for submitting to decrees that restricted their freedom for Christ in Colossians 2.21. I knew of a family once that was convinced on the basis of various Bible passages that members should not be separated from each other ever during church meetings. His conviction, sometimes called family integration, basically rules out that men and women should never have separate Bible studies. They can only have it together as a family. That there should never be youth group or children's church or Sunday school separate from the family. Parents have to be there for every time that youth or teenager or anything was ever gathered together. That the only time they should ever do worship the whole family should be there from birth to age. It should be all the families that there in church service together. He believed in this with his whole heart, but if we had to change church for this person's conviction... And the whole church would be required to completely restructure everything to meet this one family needs. Romans 14 does not teach us that this person's conviction should be forced upon a church where a different practice is our norm. What it does say, though, is that in a daily interaction with Christians one-on-one, that you cater to the weak in a way that helps them in their personal growth. Romans 14 does not say that strong Christians should hide their freedom. Paul does not tell the strong Christians in Rome to refrain from eating meat wherever a weak Christian might happen to see them. In other words, if I'm eating a steak, Paul's not like, whoa, 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 somebody's coming in. Oh, lettuce. No steak here. It's just lettuce. Which I kind of do sometimes when I'm trying to cheat on my diet and my wife or somebody comes along and I'm like, "No, no, no, I'm not eating that. He's not saying they always be for meat. He's, he's, he's given this practice of saying we shouldn't hide. We're not trying to be secretive about our freedom. We're open about our freedom, but we care more about our brother's position of where they're at. The weak Christians obviously knew that the strong ate meat because Paul instructed them not to judge the strong for doing so. They still would know even know this if the strong would began eating meat only in private. They would know that they're still doing it. It's this idea that says we shouldn't have to hide our freedom. We should walk in freedom we should care more about our brother the main point that Paul is making here is that Christians have freedom and he's showing us how to live in that freedom now I know that sounds like a contradiction doesn't it you say that Christians are free but then you tell me how to live wait a minute that doesn't sound like freedom to me at least it doesn't sound like our western modern concept of what freedom is What Paul is saying is that you are truly free, free from sin and death, free from the traps of this world. You're free from the laws that might have bound you. You are completely, totally set free by the work of Christ, his death, life, and resurrection. You're you're free to live in a grace-shaped holiness. You're free to live the way you were meant to live. You're free to live as the image of God. You're free to live with worth and purpose and significance, not with anxiety and fear and insignificance. You're free to live in perfect union with God in the new heavens the way you will in the new heavens and the new earth. Ultimately, Paul makes it clear that Christian freedom is the freedom of righteousness, peace, and joy. If you look at what he says in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying is, guys, freedom is not just being able to eat whatever you want. Freedom is not just being able to say, oh, I get to eat shrimp and lobster, which I thank God for, because back in the Old Testament, they were not allowed to do that. So I'm like, God, thank you that I can eat shrimp and lobster, and bacon. God, thank you so much that I can eat bacon. You know, And I praise God for that. Don't get me wrong. This is great. But that's not the freedom that we are meant to live. That's not the freedom that he's talking about. It's a freedom to live in liberty as a Christian, a freedom that says, hey, no longer am I bound by sin to be bound by fear fear and anxiety that what drives me. No longer do I need to please man is what drives me. No longer am I limited by the sinful nature I have in my heart that drives me. But instead, I'm free to be what I was made to be. Legan Duncan says this and answers, he asks this question and answers himself. He says, so what does the freedom of the Christian consist in? The freedom of the Christian consists in the Spirit's work in us so that we yearn to do what God wants us to do and so that we yearn to be what God has made us to be and what he has remade us to be in Christ Jesus. Not throwing off the commands of God, not in saying it doesn't matter whether I sin anymore, but in fact pursuing righteousness and confidence, knowing that we're not going to be perfectly righteous until after we take our last breath. This is the type of freedom that Paul's talking about in Romans 14. It's not an indifference to holiness. It's an embrace of holiness. We're not free to be holy. We're not free to be the way God made us to be. Do you understand this? This is the idea. is that, listen, you were created in the image of God. You are made to know right and wrong and pursue right. You are made to pursue holiness and love holiness. You are made for significance, you are made for purpose, you are made for healing of this broken world. Sin has broken that. Sin has captured you and instead what drives you is your fear of insignificance. What drives you is your anxiety. What drives you is your insecurity. What drives you is sin. But now that we've been set free from that to so be what we were made to be and we were made to be holy, we were made to look like God and now we're free to live in that. I like it in like this. Do you guys know who R2-D2 is? I love R2-D2, my favorite still. Some people like to throw up BB-8 hype him up, all this. No, no, R2-D2 is the original OG, the old, he's, he's R2-D2 is just R2-D2. Well, at one point, R2-D2 came under the rule of Jabba. Luke actually sent him in, almost like a spy, but he had to be subservient to Jabba. Jabba was in control of R2-D2. He was enslaved to Jabba the Hutt. This interstellar traveling droid was made to serve drinks. He became a drink server upon Jabba's pleasure barge of sorts, his, his, amongst his people. And this was not what R2-D2 was made for. R2-D2 was trapped in this existence. His freedom came with Luke and being set free from the bondage to serve in the way he was made to. Do you see what I'm saying? Luke came, set him free so that he could become the interstellar dwarf that he was meant to be. Yes, I know that's a very nerdy example. You're welcome for that. But that's what we are. We're, we're made for holiness. We're made for kingdom work. We're made for interstellar travel. We're made for the galaxy and for the stars. We're not made to serve drinks to uh, this monstrous Jabba. <laughs> we're made for eternity. Sin has trapped us and we're set free to be who we're made to be. And who we're made to be is when we find our most significant, our purpose, and our most fullest of joy. In our freedom, we embrace holiness because that's what we're made to be. Made to be what we're, that's us in our fullness. And in our action with each other, we value unity over uniformity. I don't know which early Christian leader said this quote. Some say Augustine, some say others, but I love this quote. It says this In essentials, unity. In, uh, uh, in non essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I'll say that again. In essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty and all things charity. Romans 14 says there are disputable matters. Paul is saying that there are things that we disagree on about the church that should not lead to division. Now, he's not saying that there's never anything in the church that we shouldn't divide over. Throughout Paul's letters, he has identified things that should make us separate. In Galatians, Paul says, if anybody teaches a gospel different from this one, you should label them as a false teacher and not entertain them in the church. In 1 Corinthians, says if someone's practicing open immorality, we need to remove them, confront them from fellowship. But not everything rises to that level. And here Paul introduces kind of a category called disputed matters. He says that things, that are, things that are disputed and the matters of conscience that are disputed. A theologian named Michael Bird gives three levels of importance for issues in the church that might be helpful to us. One, matters essential for salvation. The person of Christ, the way of salvation. Two, Matters that are important to the faith in the church, though not essential for salvation, inerrancy of the Bible, the way the local church works. Three, matters of indifference, not essentials, debatable things, preferences, and opinions, whether or not we should have drums during worship service, or the, the, we should have pews, or folding chairs, or cushy chairs, or red carpet, or blue carpet, or whatever it may be. These are matters of importance. They're matters essential for salvation, matters that are important to the faith of the church, and matters of indifference. And not everything in Christianity is a first order issue. But here's the catch. Here's the issue. The longer you're in church, the more you start to like your opinions. And everything, like your opinions on everything. And think everyone else needs to live by your opinions. In fact, in your mind, these are not even opinions anymore. They're just the way things are, the way mature Christians should think. And here's the deal. For many things in the Christian life, God has not spelled out what he wants to the letter. He gives us principles and expects us to use wisdom and the Holy Spirit in applying them to new situations. Guys, can I just say to you over and over again, not everything you want, not opinion, is a matter of utmost importance. It's not. Let me just say that again. It's not of the utmost importance whether or not we have drums in worship service or not. I'm sorry, Greg, but it's not. It's not though, whether or not we have a clear podium up here or not, or what color the carpet is or not. It just isn't. There's a matter of opinion, and with matters of opinion, we show grace and humility. And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't tell us, hey, have drums, or the Bible doesn't tell us, hey, have a clear podium. The Bible doesn't tell us to have a high-ceiling church or have no-ceiling church. But it does give us principles, and that's what maturity is, is having the wisdom to know what the right thing to do, even when it's not spelled out in Scripture. Maturity is knowing the right thing to do when it's not spelled out in scripture. And why does the Bible do it this way? Well, I think the Bible does it this way because like parents with my kids, I'm not going to be able to walk through my kids, I'm not going to be able to look at Josiah and Hudson and say for every circumstance, for every situation you face, this is how you respond. It'd be easy, it'd be nice if we could. It'd be nice if, it's nice if the Bible can say for every circumstance, every confrontation, every situation that I'm going to experience, the Bible clears out, Lawrence, do this. But it doesn't. What does the Bible do? It gives us principles to live by so we make right decisions. That's what I try to do to my children. I teach them principles to live by so that whatever circumstance they face, they use wisdom, principles, and the power of the Spirit to make the right decision. And that's what, we, that's what we're doing. That's what God's doing with us in scriptures, is he gives us Scripture, he gives us principles, he gives us wisdom, and he gives us the Holy Spirit so we can know what decisions to make as the circumstances come. But here's the thing, we should always show restraint in equating our wisdom, our application of this principle with the word of God. Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong convictions, it is learning how to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. I'm going to say that one more time. Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong convictions, that's a part of it, but it's learning how to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. Guys, I want you to understand this. The desire for Paul here is to have unity in the body of Christ, for us all to be one. So how should we practice unity and handle disputable matters? What should we do? What is Paul teaching us to do? As we, His desire for us is to show that we walk in Christian freedom as we walk in the holiness that grace has shaped us to walk in, and then we walk in unity with each other. Number one, and I got six quick things for this. Number one, you obey your conscience. You obey your conscience. God's calling you through the Holy Spirit to live according to his will. So don't ignore that still, small voice that's calling you to holiness. Others may not be walking in that way, and that's okay. Okay. If God is calling you to wake up every morning at six, to spend 30 minutes with him, just you and him quietly the first thing in the morning, then do it. Don't worry if other people aren't doing it. You do it. If God's calling you to not watch TV ever again or not watch TV anymore, then don't watch it. Don't worry if nobody else is doing it. You just go do it. Obey your conscience. The spirit may be working something out in you that is different from someone else. So just because he's not calling Susie or Billy to do the same thing, doesn't mean he's not calling you to do it. Listen to your conscience. Obey your conscience. The Holy Spirit is at work in you, speaking to you. Two, be humble about your stance. Can we just acknowledge that we don't know everything? My understanding has changed year after year of my life. I, mean, I kid you not, I can read the same passage of scripture a year from now and be like, whoa, that's, I got something totally different from last year and the year before that. If I can change that much as I read scripture, can we just be humble and acknowledge that you probably don't know everything? Right? Can we just be humble and say other people's opinions could be valid and important and you need to hear them? Can we be humble and not hold so tightly to convictions that don't matter that much? Can we hold loosely to the things that need to be held loosely to? Because what's important what God has called us to, we need to hold tightly to that. The fact that who Christ is and what he's called us to be as a church. May we hold tight to that and may we hold loose to what time the worship service is. Or may we hold loose to whether or not I should watch a TV show. Can we be humble and know that we are all weak and we all need to grow. None of us, get this, ready for this? None of you have arrived yet. None of us have. May we be humble in that. Three, may we be patient with those who think differently. May we be patient. 14.3 says, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt. The one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Be patient and understanding with people. Remember when you were just like them. At least I was. Guys, can I be honest with you? I grew up very cultural Christian as a kid. My parents made me go to church. I went to church. So I, knew what it was, I knew just what it was like to be a cultural Christian where I kind of knew that God n- n- loves me and kind of believed in Jesus. And then all of a sudden I became a Christian at 16. I got baptized and I became a passionate Christian. I was all about, oh God, everything, God is awesome. I burned my non-Christian CDs. I was like, get rid of them, those are evil. I can only listen to Christian CDs. And then a year later I'm like, oh no, I lost all my awesome CDs. Dang it. And then I got joined a Columbia membership got all my cds back that owed money to columbia it was a bad situation and so i was like oh you know Then i became that guy. I was like oh everything is free oh, i'm free i'm free to do anything then i'm like oh those are bad decisions i'm not that free because i'm a sinner and i make bad mistakes but i'm not free and then guys can i tell you i've been there i've done it all we all have can we be patient with those who are there can we be patient with those who are different from us We be patient so that we can love them well, so we can teach them well, so we can guide them well, so we can show the world that hey, we all none of us have arrived. Let's be patient with each other. That's where unity comes from. We gotta be patient with each other. Four, let's not judge. You're not judge and ruler. You're not a person in the gallery. You're not, you're not a person with this robes on to call to judge the other person. Instead, you you call instead of having a picture of a judge, you should have a picture of a, of a brother, a construction worker, a co-worker, a co-laborer. And if somebody's struggling, let me lift it up with you. Let me help you. Let me bear it with you. The idea is one that says, hey, it's my little brother. That's my little sister there. And I've been right where she is. I've been right where he is. Oh, you're struggling with that? I got you. Put that on me. I got you. Let me help you out there. You're struggling with that sin? Instead of saying, I can't believe you're struggling with that sin. How terrible you are you? You say, no, 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 let me, I've been there. Let me help you out. The idea is also that you don't judge the ones who are older than you. You say, well, why is he so, he's, he's so free? He must not really care about Jesus. And he must not really care about holiness. No, you say, well, maybe, maybe there's something to this. And instead of judging, you say, hey, can I ask you, why do you think it's okay to do what you're doing? Can we communicate? Instead of saying in judgment, can we be family? 5. Value your brother's health over your need to be right. Value your brother's health more than your need to be right. Do you care more about your brother's or sister's spiritual health than your need to be right? Paul says here is give, calling us to give up meat even though it is, it is right to eat meat if it hurts your brother. Guys, can not tell you, that passage hits me here. Because let me tell you, I love meat. I feel like I haven't had a meal if there's meats not in the meal. You know, like sometimes, like other people eat, like I'm like, what, what, what's going on here? I need, I need a full slab of meat. This is, that's not enough for me. That's not even a meal. That's like a snack. I love me, but what the Bible is calling me is that, Lawrence, you're free to eat meat. You're free to eat as much meat as you want, but are you willing to give that up because you love your brother so much more? Are you willing to give up bacon for your brother? Are you willing to give up steak for your brother? And the answer needs to be yes. What this, what this is talking about is yes, you're free. Be free. Yes, you're right. Your convictions are right. Good for you. That's not what's important. Woohoo, you're right. Good for you. No, be loving. Care more about the spiritual health. Guys, what this literally means is, okay, it's okay for you to drink. Fine, good for you. But if your brother and you're with your brother and your brother is, is struggling with alcohol, don't be drinking. It's very simple. Don't do it. Sure, you're free to drink. Don't do it if your brother's struggling with alcohol. It's a simple equation. It's love. Your brother, care more about them. Yes, you're free. Go, go read Harry Potter all day and carry your wand around with you if you want to. If that's your thing, do it. But if your brother or sister is struggling coming out of whatever situation that really having a hard time with that, then hey, don't go. Don't be like, you better read Harry Potter right now. No, I don't want to read it. You better read it. No. It might be the best books ever. Who cares if you're right if they're the best books ever? It doesn't matter. Now, I'm using silly illustrations of Harry Potter, but do you guys get the point? Care more about your brother and sister's health than about your own Christian liberties. If it hurts or stumbles somebody else, then address that. But that doesn't mean that you have to never do anything because it could stumble or address somebody. It's more, who does God place in your life that is your brother and sister in that local body at that time? It doesn't mean because somebody over five cities away might potentially struggle over something you might do. That's not what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? You guys with me? John Stott says this, did Christ love him enough to die for him and shall we not love him enough to refrain from wounding his conscience? In other words, John Stott is saying, if Christ loved enough to die for your brother and sister, if he loved, en- loved enough that he was willing to die for him, then shouldn't we love him enough that we're not going to hurt and wound their conscience? Pastor D- Danny would often say this. I'm sorry, I didn't even ask Danny if I could use this illustration, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. But Pastor Danny would tell him that he was more tempted to, to, to drink by Christian brothers and sisters than by anybody else in the world. They'd pressure him all the time. You need to drink. Why are you drinking? Why are you drinking? How does that make any sense? Do not wound the conscience of your brother because you need to be right. Six, prioritize unity over uniformity. Our culture, our time needs a church that prioritizes unity over uniformity. We need a place where we can show people how to love in light of differences and being guides. Can I tell you that our society, our culture, seems to be being more and more and more polarizing than ever. Everybody has extreme opinions, always one way or the other. You have to be on this side or this side, always, always. And it creates more and more separation, more and more distrust. And can we now be a church and can we be the place that shows, no, no, we're unified? We can have disagreements or things that don't, aren't important, but we are one. We are unified in body. We can show the world how it, what it looks like to disagree in love and in humility. Like we're not all uniform, we're not all cookie-cutter copies of one another. You guys aren't, aren't like, oh, whatever Lauren says, I think like that. Whatever Pastor Danny said, no, you're not. We don't want you to be that. We want you to be you in the way God made you. But we can also be you with your own thoughts and your own convictions. But God has brought us together through love and the work of the Holy Spirit and made us united as one. That's what Paul is talking about. He doesn't want cookie-cutter Christians. He doesn't want everybody to look the same. He wants all us to be divided. That's why God made us in every shape and color and language in the world. Because in in heaven, we will not all look the same. We will all look beautifully different. But we're going to be united. He wants unity, not uniformity. Guys, I want you to get this. In the end of John, Jesus is Praying deep, powerful prayers. He's praying with such intensity that he's bleeding, that there's blood and there's tears. And he's praying. But do you know what he's praying for? He's praying for unity. He's praying for the believers to be one. Why do we not care what Jesus is praying for? You know, my son, is Hudson, has already learned to be a little manipulative. He's four years old, and he's already learned to be manipulative. And he wants a dog. He wants a pet. And son, Hudson, came... He came up to me one day and said, Dad, can I have a a dog? I want a dog. I said, Hudson, maybe when you're older, we'll think about it. That's why I told him. I said, maybe when you're older, we'll think about it. So one night we're praying together and Hudson goes, God, I want to be older. And I'm like, oh, that's that's dirty. That's That's a good prayer kid. God, I want to be older so you can have a dog. But you know what does that to my, what it does to my heart is when I hear my son praying that he wants a dog, I almost want to start giving in. And believe me, that's huge for me because I do not want a dog. But when I hear my son praying, oh, I just want to give him whatever he prays for. Guys, Jesus prays for unity. Why do we not fight for it? Why are we so quick to give up on it? Why do we not sacrifice for it? Romans, in Paul, Romans 14, Paul is literally saying, guys, this is what it means. As you live the Christian life, you'll have disputes, you'll have arguments, you'll have weaker and stronger Christians. We'll have the situations, but fight for unity. Don't care about the things that don't matter. Love each other and fight for unity. Waypoint Church, that's what God's calling upon us. We're called to be unified in the local church body that God has called us to be. Will you fight with us for unity? Will you fight to answer the prayer that Jesus prayed? Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you as we close out this passage in this series on, on Romans. We thank you that, God, you have had a plan of salvation from the very beginning. God, that you pursued us, God, that you built a relationship with us, that you've Give us the good news of the gospel. And guys, we see how we're called to live out this Christian faith, guys. We see how we're called to live out. God, may you give us the hearts. God, may you show us our, our Christian freedom that we can live out grace-filled holiness. May we live in unity with one another. God, may we love our brother and sisters so much. God, may we be patient with each other. May we care more about them than we do about the truth. May we be humble. God, will you move in our lives so that we, as a body, as as a church local, can show your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May we see your prayer answered. God, Holy Spirit, will you work in us to make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.